Please join me in prayer. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you might be asking yourself, what are these red lights burning up here next to the altar for today, along with the holy water bucket? And um, the reason is that we are celebrating the fifth Sunday after Epiphany, which comes directly after the presentation of our Lord, which is a feast in the church, also known as Candlemas. I know you got to go from here to there to there. Essentially, what's going on is we are closing part of the church season, right? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, we're still in Epiphany, Father Sean, and you're right. But with the presentation of our Lord, we're closing the Christmas season. It's 40 days since Christmas, this past Thursday. And in the Jewish law, at the end of 40 days, a woman who had given birth was supposed to go and be purified in the temple. And so Mary and Jesus went to be purified. And also in the Jewish law, the firstborn male was to be presented to God and redeemed back. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why would that be? Well, think back to the Exodus story that our first communion students are very familiar with now. What happened in the Exodus story to those that were not covered by the blood of the Lamb? The firstborn were killed by the angel of death. And so in the Jewish law, this is an example of God's prevailing grace to his people. Now, I'll stop there because that whole thing could be its own sermon, but we have other things to move on to today. So here we are, 40 days after Christmas, after the presentation of our Lord, and the theme of light goes on. But whereas in Advent we were waiting for the light, and in Christmas Eve and Christmas Day we heard from John's Gospel that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it, today the emphasis is on the light going out. And so historically, in the Anglican and Roman Catholic traditions, candles are blessed today and sent out with parishioners to remind you, not some weird superstitious thing, but to remind you that you are the light of the world and that your house is a center of the light of the world. So, you know, most of us already have these candles from previous years, but if you don't have one, I invite you to take one with you at the end of the service to remind yourself as a sacramental thing that you are the light of the world, as Jesus told us. Now, the liturgy today is also teaching us three other points. You might have caught that we said the Decalogue at the beginning, the Ten Commandments. At the end of the service, you'll be told to go out in the fourth in the name of Christ 
And in our collect of the day, we prayed that God would, quote, keep your household, the church, continually in your true religion. Well, if there's a true religion, that means there's a false religion, right? And that the church needs to be kept in it. It means that the church can wander away from the true religion, right? So there's three main points today. One, the law of God is a light to the world. Two, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the light of the world. And three, that the church is to season, preserve, and shine forth the light of the world. So the law of God is a light of the world. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and therefore the light of the world coming to us. And the church is to, is to season, preserve, and shine the light of Christ into the world. Let's look at the first. Since the Reformation and in modern American Christianity, Christians have viewed the law, quote-unquote, as a negative thing. There's many reasons for that. Some of them good, some of them bad. Works righteousness, legalism are just a few. But the Jews and the early church would have been puzzled by the American church's aversion to the law as a good thing. Remember, the longest psalm in the Bible. Does anybody know offhand? 119, good, you're reading your Psalter. The longest psalm in the Bible, 119, is 176 verses long. And what does it extol? The law. The law. It begins with the word, Blessed are those who walk undefiled in their ways and who walk in the law of the Lord. In our first reading, if you can get beyond the strange names, you see an amazing passage about the restoration of the law in the kingdom of Judah. And so I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, it's going to benefit you to open those rather than just look at the scripture insert because we're going to dig around a little before today's passage. So if you have your Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 22. We see here a king by the name of Josiah, and he's on the throne of Judah. God's people at this time are split into two kingdoms, one called Israel and the other called Judah, you might recall. But Israel is gone. Israel has fallen. Israel has been captured by the Assyrians. And if you look back at the beginning of chapter 22, the capital of Judah, you see, is Jerusalem. And Josiah is eight years old when he ascends to the throne. But in the 18th year of his reign, making King Josiah 26 years old, he begins to dig around as to the state of the temple and God's people's worship. And verse 11 in today's reading is his reaction to reading God's law, his word, and then looking around at what's going on. What does he do? When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. 
His reaction's dramatic. But it's not merely dramatic. For tearing one's clothes in this culture was a sign of mourning and repentance, just like putting ashes on one's head. On upcoming Ash Wednesday, the 22nd of this month, we'll hear from Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. King Josiah's reaction shows that when he sees the law, to his horror, his kingdom is in grave violation of God's law and that God's severe judgment is imminent. Let me read to you some of what Josiah's predecessor, his grandfather, King Manasseh, did. And the Lord said to his servant, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all of the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster as the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt, even unto this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed much innocent blood till he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other because of the sin that he had made in Judah, the sin that was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sins that he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house and in the garden of Uzzah, the son of Ammon, and his son Ammon reigned in his place. So Ammon is the son of Manasseh and the father of today's king, Josiah. But what is it exactly that Manasseh did that was so evil in the sight of the Lord? We'll look back earlier at verse, uh, at verse 4 of chapter 21. And he built in the house, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars in the hosts of he to the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The list goes on and on. You name it, Manasseh did it. You name it, Manasseh did it. Including fertility rituals, temple prostitution, and sacrificing children, his own son even, to God's. Put in today's parlance, Manasseh was a very spiritual person. 
He didn't want to submit himself to any religion, but he was very spiritual. Spiritual, but not religious. Why limit yourself to one God? He's going to sacrifice to them all. King Manasseh was international and sophisticated in leading God's people and leading them astray in all sorts of ways. He was polytheistic. He was super spiritual. The problem was that all the gods that he worshipped were demons, as all false gods behind false religions are, then and today. On top of that, Manasseh persecuted the prophets who called him out to bring his people back. And for some reason, God permitted Manasseh to have the longest reign in all Judah, of all Judah's kings. One wonders at what point Josiah realized what a monster his grandfather was. And while he heard Shapem read the law in Deuteronomy, at what point did the bell go off at how atrocious things had become? Even reading before this, Josiah has some spiritual wisdom as he had started to rebuild the temple in Israel. And his reaction is to seek repentance. Look at verse 13 again in today's reading. Go and inquire of the Lord, he instructs his servant, for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the word of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Manasseh sends his priests and his staff to a curious person, a woman by the name of Huldah, a prophetess, who, conf who confirmed to him that indeed God's wrath was kindled against Judah. But she had this word, because of his repentance, because of his penitence, the destruction would be delayed. He would not see it. He would die before it came. This seems a strange text to read in the season of Epiphany, doesn't it? <laughs> the season of Epiphany is all about the good news of the gospel going out, right? The covenant being open to all nations, and indeed that is good news. But here in the first lesson is a cautionary tale to the church and to each of us as individual Christians, to abandon God's law and the accountability of the greater community known as the church is to put oneself at great risk and perhaps even destruction. The church must always be carrying the eternal truth of the law and the gospel out to other nations rather than accommodating that which is lawless from its surrounding culture and letting false gods in to the church. You see, the reign of Manasseh is not the epiphany. It is the anti-epiphany. It is inviting the darkness in instead of sending the light out. And rather than being a light for the nations, which Judah was called to be even before Christ, King Manasseh takes that inheritance and squanders it and warps it, and hurts his own people. Lawlessness and idolatry, a type of religious pluralism, brings God's wrath and destruction in the Old Testament 
and it does today, too, within the bounds of the church. The church and individual Christians must be on guard, sadly, because religious pluralism and moral lawlessness seems to be the fashionable religion of America and much of the West today. Perhaps you've noticed, and perhaps you haven't. But today, in our nation, in many congregations, and even in entire denominations, there are altars built to other gods in the back. There are views seeping in and hiding in the crevices of, the, of us as people. Here in America, and in the wider Western world, a lawless polytheistic religion has displaced the one true religion. In many cases, it's championed by those in politics. On both sides of the aisle, mind you, I did a lot of studying in political science, and this is not just in one side versus the other. It's also championed by movies and TV programs, by certain administrators. Polytheistic religion is championed by many administrators and teachers in universities and schools, in HR departments and corporate programs of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and sometimes by pastors themselves. The national religion is not just to tolerate religions because to tolerate our differences is good, right? But the national religion has morphed to celebrate things that are lawless and things that are not of God or else be labeled a bigot or else be labeled an enemy. That's how you know that it's a religion. That's how you know that it's a religion. Politicians often citing religion often cite religion as something to fill a human need and keep order. Have you heard that in speeches? It goes all the way back to President Eisenhower, by the way. It's not a recent thing. Just count the number of plot lines in movies and shows with themes that encourage people to dishonor their father and their mother because, quote unquote, they're out of touch. Or the ever-pervasive celebration of the so-called bravery of someone who discovers himself for who he truly is after ditching the faith and his community. At one point, Leah and I made a game out of it. We'd start watching a program on the BBC or Netflix and say, okay, when are they going to, when are they going to introduce this plot line? It's so predictable. It's so boring. It's not good art. Or perhaps the un fair characterization of people that read their Bible or go to church on Sunday as fringe lunatics or people that are arrogant and see themselves as super spiritual. Again, that's not new. Look at the warden in that old movie, The Shawshank Redemption. Open a newspaper and read about corporate policies paying to cover the costs for mothers to travel and kill their children because they're unwanted or to wear jerseys or helmets for causes that they don't believe in. We see now in our culture things pushing into the church in issues of sexuality or skin color that call on us as human beings to define ourselves by our race and by our sexuality as the defining characteristics of who we are rather than the truth of being made in the image of God, with the dignity of the image of God. We see that all over the place. Or perhaps we don't, because we're getting so used to it. Friends, this, the spiritualism 
of King Manasseh being polytheistic and lawless is alive and well in 21st century America. And it threatens not just the society, but more importantly, the church. Because we're called to live in this place and time in such a society. Many of us fled churches that had utterly abandoned the law of God in such basic areas as the Ten Commandments. I know I did. I know some of you and your stories and that you did. There's entire denominations that on a national level level, advocate for abortion. My wife's former congregation held a spiritual dance of worship that was led by a congregant who was very misled and claimed to be both a Christian and a Muslim at the same time and was leading them in Christian Muslim, uh, Christian Muslim dance and mysticism. There are some places in the Anglican Communion where the Quran has been read in place of the scripture. Friends, these are all evidence of the religion of Manasseh, spiritual but not religious. In such a world as this, indeed, the law of the Lord is a great burden for anyone to carry, but it's also a great gift because it's solid ground. What would have happened, I ask you, if the prophetess Huldah in today's first reading had not retained her true religion in the midst of a rotten culture? in the midst of persecution, true persecution, not like what we face. What would have happened if Huldah had folded and Josiah had had no one to go to? Of course, God would have raised someone up, but Huldah is, remains to us, a hero of the faith. And the church and every Christian today are vulnerable to false religion. Like Huldah and King Josiah, we are called by none other than our Lord Jesus Christ to be salt and light. Jesus Christ is the explicit fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Notice what he says in today's passage in the gospel. Do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he goes on and he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law that is accomplished. Whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them and does them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. After declaring the Beatitudes in last week's passage, Jesus declares what he said in the gospel today, and he too echoes the warning, the warning that comes down to us through millennia going back to Josiah even. His warning is that God's people cannot lose their God-ordained purpose. They cannot lose the task that God's given them to be both salt and light in the world. You know, salt and light have a primary purpose, both of them, right? What's the primary purpose of salt? To preserve and season. What's the primary purpose of light? to shine on things, to shine on things, to illuminate things. The commandment of Jesus is for us, being the light of the world, to season, preserve, and shine. And the church gathered and Christians gathered throughout communities are to be that seasoning in their communities. Salt that is savory is valuable and potent. But as Jesus said, 
If it loses its saltiness, what good is it? What good is it to be thrown out and trampled? That's a warning, friends. That's a warning. What Jesus is speaking of here is the coming judgment of God's people, but it's also a warning to the church. It's a warning to all congregations, all denominations, and the church. And do not be so proud as to think that false spirituality or cultural accommodation or polytheism cannot infiltrate the Anglican Church in North America, or even St. Anselm, or even your own heart. We must be on guard, friends, as we prayed in our collect. That's why commitment to the truth of the gospel and to one another is so important. It's so very important. And those two things go together. Mid-century Archbishop of Cape Town, Joost de Blanc, writes, We must never accept without question conventional worldly standards. We must guard against them and fight against them, which we can begin to do effectively only by taking social responsibility for one another. What's he calling the church to? Commitment. Taking social responsibility for one another. That's not an easy thing either. He wrote that, by the way, in 1954, and he meant what he wrote. The good archbishop went on to be archbishop of Cape Town in South Africa during apartheid. And he became known as the scourge of apartheid for his principled stances because he knew the church's culture, the church's truth, was more important than that that was put out by those in charge in South Africa, the apartheid folks. He refused to play the game. And so, friends, refuse to play the game of pluralistic, polytheistic, immoral, lawless behavior in your own life. Take responsibility for each other. Refuse to play the game. Encourage one another and hold each other accountable out of love. We will not all agree on things 100%. All you have to do is talk to one another in coffee hour or perhaps in small groups and you know that. But we do all agree on God's moral law. And we all agree that Jesus is the fulfillment of it and that Jesus is the answer. We must proclaim God's truth no matter how intimidating outside of these walls might be. The truth of the law and the truth of the gospel as well. God's law is changeless. It change, changes not. And no matter what our culture says or what our society says, there's one God to be honored, loved, and obeyed, as we sang at the beginning of our service. To him, all glory and honor. He sets what is good and evil alone. He is perfect freedom. He alone defines morality and what's just for human beings. His commandments are eternal and not subject to politicians or campaigns, to presidents, to cultural influencers, to all sorts of things, even supreme courts and councils of the church must bow to his law. He is a jealous God, and he has the right to be. He will not tolerate devotion to other gods aside from himself, and he will not tolerate lawless behavior because it's bad for us. It's bad for his creatures. 
No human being, however, can stand justified before him. As the psalmist ends that long Psalm 119 with verse 176, I have gone astray like a sheep that is lost. O seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The same God has given us a light in the darkness. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who lived the perfect life, not abolishing the law, but fulfilling it for us. And through him alone and by his grace, can the church be saved? Can, uh, can the church be protected? And can the church be maintained in true religion? As Christians and members of that church, you, dear friends, have some great freedoms in this country that we shouldn't lose track of. We must not be intimidated or afraid to be salt and light. Through the scriptures interpreted by the Council of the Historic Church, we do have the incredible gift of God's truth about things like creation, sexuality, social responsibility, and the fulfillment of life. Do your part, by God's grace, in not participating in the anti-epiphany. That's the warning today. Do your part, whatever you're called to do, to not take part in the anti-epiphany, but rather be part of the epiphany, the light in the darkness. We must stand against the lies of our day, it's true, but that's not enough. We also must stand for the truth and for him who's the author of all truth. We must, we must speak of biblical truth along with God's love and mercy, along with the fact that it's only by his love and mercy that any of us are saved to begin with. And so that has to accompany it. You know, you can't major in one and not talk about the other. We cannot have evangelists of the law and not evangelists of the gospel. You can't major in the law and not talk about the gospel. Conversely, you can't talk about the gospel and not talk about the law. That's not an option either. Because the law is part of the light. And Christ has fulfilled the law. As the psalmist says, God has sought us as a sheep and he promises to bring us back. And we can hang our hat on that and remember that when the times get hard. And so, dear friends, in summation, we must always remember that it's by God's grace that the church endures. It's by his grace that we're saved. It's by his grace that true religion is maintained. And it's by his grace that the, line, the light will shine forth in the darkness. Let your light, therefore, so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.